Hey there, and welcome to another rollicking episode of The Five By, the only board game podcast that exists. We've got a full bucket for you this trip. Meeple Lady takes Heavy Euros Portable in Caverna, Cave to Cave. Luke profits through trade in the now classic Hansa Teutonica. I shuffle up and deal with the Arabic card game Basra. Laura gets speechless in the micro word game Shh. And our good friend Kat makes her final appearance with the electronic music machine Drop Mix. We wish Kat well as she moves on to new and exciting projects, and we will miss her dearly. Hi everyone, it's Laura. I'm kind of a word nerd. And by kind of, I mean big time. And by big time, I mean completely. I enjoy all kinds of word games. And if one of them comes in a teeny tiny box, even better. Add cooperative and filler to that list, and you have a little game called Shh. That's spelled S-H-H. Shh is a two-to-four player game designed by Chris Handy and published by Perplexed in 2015. It takes about 10 minutes to play, and as you may have guessed by its name, there's no talking during the game. Players take turns building words together, one letter at a time, from left to right. The goal is to play as many letters as possible before running out of valid moves. I have to be honest, when I read through the rulebook, I didn't expect too much from the game. But once I started playing it, I was pleasantly surprised. Right out of the gate, the visual appeal is high. Each card has a vibrant photo or illustration related to the letter printed on it. For example, the J card has a bunch of colorful jelly beans. The quality of the artwork is impressive for a $5 game, and it really added to the experience. I should mention that Chris Handy, the game's designer, is also credited with the graphic design, with additional photography provided by Neil Kronberg. At the start of the game, all the consonant cards are dealt out to players, and vowels are placed in the center of the table as a shared resource. Unlike other word games where you combine random letters to spell a word, here, it's not about building a specific word. I mean, you can try to do that, but you'll quickly realize probability is not on your side. Instead, the puzzle is about picking the letter that will keep the most possibilities open for other players. If the person before you starts a new word, and that word begins with the letter Y, you're trying to figure out which vowel usually comes next. You start building and scanning a mental list of Y words to see if you can spot a pattern. Now, toward the beginning of the game, you're thinking about general word patterns. But as the game progresses, you'll have to factor in which consonants are still in play to figure out the optimal move. Luckily, you don't have to rely on memory for this, because all cards that have already been played remain out on the table for anyone to see. There are some other things you need to factor in as well. You'll probably start off with at least one or two difficult letters in your hand, which means you need to strike a balance between playing the optimal letter and getting rid of as many letters as possible. Sometimes it's easy. For example, if the word so far is F-I and you have an X, you're obviously going to toss that down. Other times, you have to make a tough call. Maybe it's getting close to the end of the game, so you decide to lose that K that's been weighing down your hand, while pretending not to notice the side eye you're getting from other players. Or maybe you play a suboptimal vowel to score the group an extra point at the end of the game. So how does scoring work? Well, at the end of the game, the group scores one point for each letter that was used in a completed word. Since the vowel cards are in play the whole game, they're two-sided with a plus one indicator on one side, so you can track which ones you used. Now, you can't lose the game, but the rulebook has a scoring legend to let you know how well you did. Poor, proficient, phenomenal, etc. And that's pretty much it. What I appreciate about this game is that it achieves the delicate balance between challenging and frustrating. Making vowels a shared resource and having them return to the shared pool each time a word is complete is a great rule. Same with the pass cards, which are also a shared resource. 
If you can't play a letter on your turn, or don't want to for some reason, you can flip over one of the pass cards. But there are only as many pass cards as players in the game, so they add another strategic choice while also keeping the game from ending too early. And if you're looking for more challenging play, the rulebook provides some variants such as increasing the minimum word size from 3 to 4 or 5, or reducing the number of pass cards. Speaking of rules, there's one rule in the game that cracks me up. At the start of your turn, if you believe the letters in front of you form a valid word, you can either keep adding to it or put out a thumbs up to call a silent vote. If everyone at the table gives it a thumbs up, you move the consonants aside for endgame scoring and start a new word. But if anyone gives it a thumbs down, you have to verify whether it's a valid word. And if it's not, the game ends. Now, I don't know about you, but my game group can be a bit lenient when it comes to cooperative games. We might, when playing a game like this, tend to rule in our own favor. Now, I'm no legal scholar here, but I assume this is the same reason that a defendant in a court case doesn't also act as a judge. And I'm pretty sure this conflict of interest didn't escape the designer's notice, because in the rulebook, the very first tip in the tip section is this, be honest when voting, and it's in bold. I feel attacked, but also seen. So who won't like this game? If you don't like cooperative games, simple games, rules that restrict talking, or games where you can't lose, then you probably won't like this one. But if you enjoy word games, then I definitely recommend giving it a try. Shh comes in a tiny box you can carry in a pocket, requires very little table space, and only takes about 10 minutes to play. Sure, it has kind of an unfortunate name, or at least when you have to say it out loud, as you've seen in this podcast, but it's simple and fun and inexpensive. And that's all I got. I'm Laura Donovan Bannister, and you can find me on Twitter at Laura Wrote It. When you hear the phrase dry euro, what game comes to mind? Some of the most popular games, Agricola, Puerto Rico, Trajan, fall into this category. The dry euro is arguably responsible for the modern board gaming renaissance. As much as fans of Risk and Axis and Allies might want to claim lineage for massively popular games like Blood Rage and Kemet, it's entirely possible those games never would have seen the light of day had Catan not triggered the avalanche. Dry Euros make up the largest segment of my collection. That cube-pushing, resource-trading, influence-peddling, route-building, brain-burning multiplayer solitaire is everything I look for in my favorite games. Someone once said the most pleasing phrase in the English language is cellar door. But for me, it's victory points. To call Hansa Teutonica a dry euro is an understatement on par with calling Sean Connery that guy from the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. It is, quite possibly, the blandest looking euro I've ever seen, Castle Burgundy included. Hansa Teutonica's table presence is non-existent, a tedious wash of earth tones and muted pastels that inspires militant indifference. The cover art is, to put it delicately, inexpertly rendered featuring a main character clad in what I can only describe as a fur-collared plantain peel, so utterly devoid of charisma it's clear he bores even himself. He's surrounded by representations of the game's symbology that might have been clever if they weren't so ham-fisted, alongside what I assume is supposed to be a lamp that actually just looks like a bong. In spite of all that, Hansa Teutonica is straight-up amazing. But don't take my word for it. After Argentum Verlag published it in 2009, Hansa Teutonica won that year's Meeple's Choice Award. In 2010, it made the Spiel des Jahres recommended list and ran away with the Golden Geeks, nominated for Most Innovative Board Game and winning both Best Strategy Game and Game of the Year. 
once you get past the soul-sucking cover artwork, and I mean seriously, this guy looks like an evil sorcerer trapped him in the most boring Renaissance painting in existence, and it didn't measurably affect his life. The game inside the box is just fantastic. Players take on the role of merchants in medieval Germany, attempting to... uh... doesn't matter. At its core, Hans Teutonica is a route-building game built around an action selection mechanism. Each player board has five different abilities, divided into a series of spaces covered wholly or in part by the trader and merchant pieces the player uses to build their routes. You start the game with only two actions per turn, increasing to as many as five with upgrades, split among five different effects, four of which involve moving your pieces. Income brings merchants and traders from the general supply into your employ, place allows those employees to be added to routes on the board, and move allows you to switch employees to different routes if their current positions are suboptimal. My favorite is Displace, which allows you to not only place an employee, but to kick an opponent's off a route at the cost of discarding an extra of your own. The Displaced player then gets to move their booted piece plus an additional one to an adjacent route. It's the only somewhat take that element in the game, but the benefit is so great that sometimes you're actually hoping to get displaced. It also leads to purposely dropping a trader into an opponent's mostly built route with the specific intention of forcing them to displace it. The purpose of all this is to claim roots. When you fill an entire route with an employee, you can take the claim action to earn points and potential bonuses. This also allows you to either establish an office in one of the cities at either end of the route, or improve one of your abilities by bringing a new employee into play. Separating the ability to claim a route into its own action is a brilliant design choice, adding just enough limitation that players are forced to jockey for position to claim routes over multiple turns. While these mechanisms might seem simple at first blush, the web of interactions between placing and displacing employees, claiming routes, and upgrading abilities makes for one of the most intriguing and satisfying puzzles in modern board games, with just enough player interaction to keep your attention rooted to the board on other players' turns. Bonus actions and specialty cities add even more wrinkles, two expansion maps add a lifetime of replayability, and a variety of paths to victory ensure that no two games play entirely the same. It has made me a lifelong fan of designer Andreas Stedding, whose name you might recognize from 2018's massively popular title, Gugong. And I have to say, despite its dirt patch camouflage, the symbology in the game is well-designed and clear. From a gameplay standpoint, the game board works just fine for what is, effectively, an abstract cube pusher. It's never going to win any art contests, but it's functional. When I started writing this, I was going to say that my dry Euro bias required taking my opinion with a grain of salt. But the more I think about it, I realize Hansa Teutonica doesn't require that caveat. If you're into Eurogames in general, you're likely already used to jumping past less than stellar art and pasted on themes. Though that hurdle is particularly high with Hansa Teutonica, it's a familiar leap with a massively rewarding landing. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! I suspect that some people might quibble about whether the game I'm reviewing is actually a board game. Indeed, Drop Mix inspires lots of strong feelings among the Luddites and purists who would prefer their games to contain only wood and cardboard, and not several pounds of plastic electronic circuits flashing lights, and certainly not phones, apps, and batteries to function. This game comes with a Drop Mix console, a smart plastic slab with slots for cards, and a spot to hold your phone or tablet. It also comes with four decks of 15 themed cards, allowing you to play the included game modes with up to four players. Getting playing means installing batteries, downloading the aforementioned app, deciding whether you need external speakers, Dropmix relies on your connected device to produce the sound, 
connecting DropMix to your cell phone's Bluetooth connection, and deciding whether or not to sleeve the cards you are about to toss around. Scott Stein from CNET describes the game as a mad blend of Rock Band and Magic the Gathering. Card health becomes an issue because, like Magic the Gathering, Drop Mix is a suitable, collectible card game. Fifteen card decks and sampler packs come out seasonally. Some of these packs stay available on the market, while others are swept up in hours only available via price gougers on the secondary market. Drop Mix is very playable without these extra cards, but I haven't met anyone who hasn't invested in extra packs to make the experience richer. Each card in Drop Mix has a code embedded in it that the game reads when the card is placed on the device. When the device reads that a specific card has been dropped onto a slot, the game accesses that song or instrumental part of a song and plays it. Place a new card on the same slot, and the previous lyric beat or rhythm will drop out smoothly and the new one will take its place. There are five such slots on the console, each color-coded to instrument types, and Drop Mix can manage all five slots worth of cards at one time, making one unique mashup. On the Drop Mix app, you have your choice of three different game variants. Each gaming mode comes with an easy-to-follow tutorial on how to play, as well as a link to a how-to-play video on the web. In Clash, it's players versus players, trying to manage their hands best in what is ostensibly an area control game over the five slots. Party is a cooperative game where everyone is working on managing their own hands in real time to help the group score the most points possible, which includes daily online leaderboards and all. These were the only two gaming modes when the game was released, and we got bored of them very fast. What we loved were these moments during play where my husband and I would stop and listen and realize that we were making a truly delightful and essentially unique song. This was addictive. Fortunately, Dropmix ships with a non-gaming mode called Freestyle. Freestyle simply lets you play the cards and make music. It even gives you control over each card's volume in the mix, the song's tempo and key, as well as a randomizer for those things. This is the mode where we lost hours pretending we were bad DJs and having a blast doing it. When we got the game, Harmonix hadn't released the final game mode yet. Puzzle is a solo game where you are again practicing hand management and timing, trying to get the best score possible. We love this version and even enjoy puzzling through it together. Unlike every other game I've reviewed on this podcast, Dropmix doesn't have a named designer. It does have some really stellar artwork by Sonder Berg, Vance Kelly, Jeff Lowry, Eric Neifeler, Kate O'Hara, Jerome Vogel, and James Weinberg. I really enjoy all the wacky illustrations on the cards, each one a beautiful conceptual interpretation of the music connected to that specific card. Developed by Harmonix, who also make Rock Band and Dance Central and published by Hasbro, Dropmix explores new gaming territory and creates something magical with this technology. I think that Dropmix transcends the traditional video board game play space to create something new. In education, we talk about using technology with kids to transform learning. We can either use technology to do exactly what we would do without it, perhaps with an upgrade or two. Think word processing instead of paper and pencil. Or we can use technology to do things we couldn't dream of before, like design an experiment for the space station, have it vetted with a scientist via video conferencing, and sharing our design with other students across the globe. Dropmix is a transformative technology and a delight to play. If you would like to share any music you make, you can find me at Kybrarian on Twitter or Cat Library on BGG. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Basra. It's been a while since we discussed a French deck card game, episode 55, when I covered Oh Hell back in February. 
I've been playing and thinking about Basra for about a year now, and I'm finally ready to talk about it. Basra is one of dozens of variations, and there are probably dozens of variations of Basra, of what are known as fishing games. Most likely, if you've ever heard of or played a fishing game, it's Casino, uh, one of the only card games of this type in the English-speaking world. Casino is, to my mind, uh, overly complex for its entertainment value and has more rules and sub-rules than a fishing game needs in order to be enjoyable and competitive. Casino came into fashion briefly in late 19th century America, so much of the overcomplication may be the result of a fairly simple fishing game being filtered through the nonsense world of middle-class drawing rooms and card parties. That set was just desperate to make card games more complicated. See the hundred unnecessary variations of bidding whist. Casino is just a bit fussy, and Commander Riker certainly isn't going to be dealing hands of it on the Enterprise, though he might be interested in Basra as a change from their weekly poker game. Basra is a simple fishing game, simpler than Tablik or Scopa, two of the other internationally popular forks of this genre. On your turn, you play a card from your hand to the table. If there's a matching card, or cards that add up to the value of your card, you take them and put everything face down in front of you. If not, you leave it on the table. At two players, you each start with four cards in your hand and four cards on the table. Your goal is to capture cards, especially aces, jacks, the ten of diamonds, and the two of clubs. Why? Mm, who knows. Tradition? Maybe. I Don't worry about it. Face cards only match other face cards, except for jacks, which sweep the whole table. In some versions, the jacks are called a shush, which sort of means to eat. If you play a jack, you take all the face-up cards on the table and add them to your score pile. In Lebanese Basra, my preferred version, and not just because I'm partially Lebanese, there's a minimum of 16 points available every hand. Three points for capturing the majority of cards, one point for each ace and jack, then three points for the ten of diamonds, and two points for the two of clubs. Now, I've seen some reference to these two cards as grandmother and granddaughter, but I couldn't find any other folk references to back this up. My assumption is that most card game folklore collected from Lebanon and Syria is in Arabic, which obviously precludes me from finding it. The winning strategy here is to put yourself in a position to Basra, or clear the table with a card other than a jack. So if there was a 2 and a 5 on the table, you could play a 7 and Basra. Basras are worth 10 points, which is a lot, and you keep track of this by putting the card you played face up in your score pile. If the only card on the table is a jack and you take it with a jack in your hand, that's a Basra as well. You want to play to 101 or 121 points depending on how long you like your games to last. Typically, at 101, you're looking at probably 8 to 10 hands, depending, of course, on how much you're able to Basra. There are some traditional dealing peculiarities that I very much embrace when playing Basra, and I think you should too. In a hand, the non-dealer is always first, even after the next draw up of four cards. Because of this, cards are not dealt back and forth, but in sets of four, drawn all at once. This also means that the dealer will always have the final play of a hand, so it's traditional after the non-dealer cuts to pick up the deck and reveal the bottom card. While it does give a lovely ceremonial flair, it's also an important equalizing element in what can come down to a game that hinges just on card memory. If both players know what card is on the bottom, it knocks the edge off the dealer's advantage of playing last. I am not a good enough card counter for this to ever matter for me, but we observe it anyway, just out of reverence. The last draw is usually fairly important as well, since the final player to collect cards takes everything left on the table at the end of the hand. This isn't always a game changer, but it can significantly impact who takes majority in the hand. From the view of gaming folkways, the bottom card reveal shows that you're not bottom dealing, and giving the non-dealer the first four cards also prevents the dealer from stacking strong cards in their own favor. Many of the fishing games are traditionally played for money, either a set wager per game or a penny a point style profiting from the difference in scores, so social rules set in place to keep dealers honest are present in almost all of our games. We deal cards one at a time around the table in western style card games for exactly the same reason. This is also why, and I really want to stress this, you should never ever touch your cards until they're all dealt. 
Never. Just leave them be. I know this seems like an insignificant hill for me to die on, but I absolutely will. So besides Lebanese Basra, it seems like most regions or ethnic groups in the Mediterranean Middle East have some version of the game with specifically localized rule variations. I've read through most of them and played a lot of them, and I think my version presented here is both the simplest and most modern. It's the version that feels the most developed, and the least like a wonky folk game with arbitrary extra rules and exceptions. There's nothing to buy here, of course, but do check the show notes for a link to a printable card I made to help remind you of how Basra scores. Cut it out and slip it into your favorite deck of cards. So, who should play Basra? People who like casual, traditional card games. People who like two-player games that you can still chat while playing. People who like easy-to-teach card games that work for non-gamers. And people who want to up their card snobbery with yet another game no one else has ever played. I give Basra 16 out of 16 jacks played on jacks to clear the table and sweep the game while drinking thick, bitter coffee loaded with cardamom from a tiny cup. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. Caverna, Cave vs. Cave, designed by Uwe Rosenberg, with artwork from Clemens Franz, was released in 2017 by Lookout Games, which publishes a whole line of mini 2P Uwe games. Among them are Agricola All Creatures Big and Small and Lahav the Inland Port. With Caverna, Cave vs. Cave, players get a bite-sized version of the beloved Uwe game Caverna. Yes, I said beloved, because personally, I love Caverna a hair more than Agricola. Caverna, Cave vs. Cave, is a great game. It takes Caverna, that larger-than-life game, which seriously weighs about the same as a small child, and puts it into a small, two-player box game that plays in about 30 minutes. But even if you don't play any Uve games, or even if you love Agricola more than Caverna, Caverna Cave vs. Cave is quick, yet satisfyingly strategic. In Caverna Cave vs. Cave, two players are dwarves working hard at excavating their caves, gathering resources, and furnishing rooms. The game goes on for eight rounds, and players go back and forth selecting their actions, two actions each in the first four rounds, three in the next three rounds, and then lastly, four actions in the final eighth round. Each player receives their own player board, which has a track on the right side to keep count of that player's personal resources, wood, stone, wheat, flax, food, and gold. The game comes with wooden bits for the wood, stone, wheat, and flax, but there are also corresponding cardboard chits for each item if you prefer that instead. I kinda wish it included a plastic gold nugget as well, but eh, that's totally minor. Utilizing a track simplifies the setup and the flow of the game. All players start with one of each resource. The rest and the majority of your player board is the cave. At the start of the game, room tiles are randomly placed face down inside your cave. When those rooms become excavated, the tile flips over, revealing a unique room, and those rooms are now available for either player to build. At the start of the game, there are six room tiles already in play, which you can build as soon as you have the required resources for them. But in order to build a room, you need to take the action spot that enables that. The game's action board is this narrow strip of cardboard that sits between the two players. The action tiles sit on it, and it indicates how many actions each player has during each round. At the start of the game, there are five action spots players can choose from. With each future round, another action spot is flipped over, giving players more options. The action tiles are randomly placed based on the phase, so the order of actions aren't always the same for each game. Except for the last tile, that one is always the same one. Since there aren't too many actions to choose from, 
and you get so few actions anyway, you really feel the sting when your opponent chooses the one thing that you want to do. For example, build a room to furnish a cavern, which gets more expensive as the rounds progress. Other action spots allow you to collect resources, exchange goods, or excavate. And in typical Uve fashion, some rooms have the either-or options. In addition to spending required resources to furnish your cavern, the excavated space must also satisfy the wall configuration printed on it. Some high-value rooms need four walls around it, so being strategic in how you excavate and place that tile is super important, as well as placing your wall when you take the build-a-wall action. Some rooms will give you resources as soon as you build it, but the majority of them won't be activated until you take an action that activates any room on your player board. Each player gets one base room that's printed already on the player board, but the rest of your resource engine comes from furnishing your rooms. Caverna Cave vs. Cave, however, removes the impending struggle of feeding your dwarves, which some might say is the source of misery for other Uve games. It still manages to maintain the sense of urgency of excavating and furnishing your caves because there are so few actions in the entire game. Because before you know it, it's round 8 and it's over. Players then count up the VPs on the room tiles on their player board, and each gold counts as one VP. The person with the most VPs wins the game. In the case of a tie, the player who built the highest value room wins the game. I've actually owned this game for a while now, and my only regret is that I didn't take the time to learn the rules sooner. It's now one of my quick go-to 2P games, perfect for when a gamer from your gaming group is running really late, or when you don't have a lot of time to jump into a three and a half hour game of Caverna. The game already has an expansion, Caverna Cave vs. Cave Era 2, but I haven't had a chance to play that yet. And that's Caverna Cave vs. Cave. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! You've been listening to The 5 by the fast and friendly podcast by people who love board games. You can follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or visit our website at 5bygames.com. From all of us at The 5 by thanks for listening. The 5 by is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at insidevoicesnetwork.com.